In chapter uh, 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're thinking about Paul's last words, his last words to Timothy, his last words in the Bible, and his last words that were recorded before he was ultimately martyred uh, for the cause of Christ. And uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 We want to begin reading in verse 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Remember, Timothy is his uh, apprentice. Paul is mentoring him, has been mentoring him. Uh, He has sent him to Ephesus. We know this from the first epistle to uh, pastor the church there and appoint elders in that place. And now he's giving him these final words of encouragement and exhortation. And uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, he says this, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Jans and Yambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather together as a united church family. And we thank you, O God, that we are progressing uh, toward that time when we can worship as freely as we desire. And certainly we want to be in a position, Lord, where we can bring you all the glory and honor and praise and to be able to sing as a congregation. So we pray, Father, that as our nation proceeds toward the lifting of regulations, that, Lord, that day will come soon when we can exalt the name of Christ in song as a company of your people. For, Father, we come today and we want to, first of all, give thanks for the opportunity to fellowship and to remind ourselves that we fellowship on the basis of the cross, at the foot of the cross. And here we gather, Lord, not because we are particularly attracted one to another, but because of Jesus and because of our community in him. And so, Father, I pray today that you would exalt his name in all that is said this morning, that he would be glorified, that he would be honored, that he would have the preeminence among us, that his perfect will would be served from this pulpit. And, Lord, that you would touch our hearts and speak to our lives. We pray if there's anyone either here in person or at home watching online who does not know you as their Savior, that they would appreciate the lateness of the hour and the days in which we live and recognize that the Lord Jesus is soon to be on his way and that this world is set to be judged of him. 
Father, we pray that you'd help them to get in before the time runs out, to be saved before the, the moment of eternal damnation dawns upon them and there is no turning back and no hope of a second chance. So, Father, we just pray today that you'd move and, uh, and that you would indeed, uh, by your Spirit, touch those hearts and lives that may be outside of Christ. We pray for your people today, Lord, that you would help us to be discerning, help us to be aware of the world in which we live, help us to see and to understand the signs of the times. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as Paul wrote this epistle to Timothy, one of his concerns was that Timothy should understand the, the, the times in which we're living, that he should understand the last days, the nature of the last days, the characteristics of the last days. And so you find in these epistles that Paul touches on eschatological truths throughout. Uh, particularly in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he'd already warned about a coming great apostasy and how that men would surrender their souls to the doctrines of devils. But now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he turns his attention to society at large and he wants to define the characteristics of that society and to impress upon on Timothy the nature of the world that is to come so that if these things should occur in his day he would be prepared and ready for the coming of the Lord. Now it's true that in terms of theology the last days begin really at the day of Pentecost and run all the way through to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, but yet with all that phrase the last days is an eschatological phrase. It's a phrase that really deals with the end times that, that impresses upon us the, the, the suddenness and the soonness of our coming Lord and the possibility of the consummation of all things. Jesus taught that we should be able to discern the signs of the times. Indeed, he condemned the Pharisees for their inability to discern the signs of the times in their day and miss his coming as the Messiah. And certainly we don't want to replicate their mistake. We want to be aware of some of the issues surrounding the last days. And so, as I say, Paul here deals with these issues in 1 Timothy and chapter uh, 4, or so in 1 Timothy addresses the apostasy in the church but in 2 Timothy, he addresses anarchy in the world. He said that men would find themselves, notice, living in perilous times. Times that would prove difficult. Times that would be troublesome. Times that would be hard to bear. Especially so for much of the church. And surely, friends, we are living in such times. I don't know if, unless you're a very young person, I don't think you could look at the world around you today and say that the world is in a normal place. It's very, very different. Very different from the world of our youth. Very different from the world of those who went uh, before us. And we're living in a time in which things are becoming increasingly difficult. If you notice verse 13 of this passage, the reason that things are becoming more difficult is that men are becoming increasingly more evil. Verse 13, Paul says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He tells us that people themselves 
ourselves are going to become increasingly more evil, that there will be less restraint in the world, and that indeed those people will make life difficult for everybody else around them. And if you took a look at your news headlines in the last week, just the last week, you will see at a cursory glance the kind of world that we now find ourselves living in. Here are some of the headlines that I spotted this week. A killer spends just two hours in prison. Thug who stabbed teenager 128 times was transferred to secure psychiatric hospital the day he was jailed. Stabbed somebody 138 times, did two hours of time, and then went to hospital. Jewish man is abused twice in the space of an hour on public transport in London by thugs threatening to slit his throat for Palestine. Millionaire businessman, 71, who bought £37,000 a year boarding school so he could abuse pupils on his country estate over two decades from the 90s, is jailed for three years. Can you imagine? He abused these children for 20 years. And he gets three years in prison. He'd be out in a year and a half. Psychiatric report prepared for a medical student, 25, accused of throwing sulfuric acid over a doctor. Boy, 15, is convicted of murdering his 12-year-old friend. He lured to woodland and then tried to decapitate because he was a snitch. He stabbed him 70 times. Sex predator company boss raped teenage girl after job interview. And then gave her 20 pounds. Satanist sixth former found guilty of murdering two sisters in a knife attack in a London park after making pact with demon to win the lottery. Six-year-old who was strangled to death by neighbor was hidden in his house while cops searched for her. And then one closer home, tent with homeless woman inside set alight in Stoke-on-Trent. That's the world that we're bringing our children up in. And it's frightful, isn't it? It's concerning. These are perilous times. The times of which Paul spoke. The times of which the Bible speaks. The times that lead up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that these will be times of increasing selfishness. Uh, Look here in verse 2. He says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. This is the selfie generation. This is the generation where men and women are encouraged to love themselves. Christ taught us, quite opposite, to deny ourselves. But here people are taught now to love themselves, and such self-love is said to be the foundation of personal happiness and healthy personality. Yet social scientists looking at this now say we're in an epidemic of self-love. 
Men and women have been become preoccupied with self, needing constant admiration, needing constant approval and assurance from others. And anything less leads them into anger and confusion and depression. We don't have losers anymore. We have runners-up. People are awarded not for winning things anymore, but simply for taking part in things. Because we don't want to hurt one's feelings, do we? We don't want you to face yourself in the mirror and to admit that you haven't met a particular standard. Everyone must be mollycoddled. Everyone must be shrouded in, po- in cotton wool. Everyone must be protected from the possibility of personal offense. No matter how bizarre, no matter how unacceptable your behavior is, well, you must be shielded from every form of criticism. Only that which is self-affirming of you must be heard. We live in a time when people insist that you go along with them in everything they believe and do. Otherwise, you're some kind of hater or you're termed some form of phobic. These people have such a fragile self-esteem that no matter uh, what, they, you know, no matter how slight the bruise uh, to their ego, they, they cry foul and they seek some safe place, so-called, where no one can challenge them and no one can criticize them. My goodness, what kind of world have we become? What kind of place is it that we live in that no one can be challenged, that no one may be corrected, that we may not say that's right and that's wrong anymore? These past few decades have witnessed a seismic shift in society from a commitment to the collective, to the good of the whole of society, to a focus on the individual, on the, on the self. Somewhere along the line, we have determined as a society that self-esteem was the key to success in life. And so teachers and parents were encouraged to tell their children how special they are and how unique they are and, and to tell them that they, that they stand apart from all others, even if they don't, just in order to build up their confidence. It's a confidence trick, isn't it? Parents have tried to confer self-esteem upon their children rather than letting them achieve self-esteem through endeavor and study and hard work. Everyone's a winner. Everyone is special. No one may be considered average or heaven above. Please let no one be considered below average. You know, we've bred a generation of young people, and and, and not just young people, but of adults now, who are lovers of themselves, who feel entitled, who feel that somehow everybody everywhere owes them in some way. All the other descriptions that Paul uses there, all those other terms that he applies there, really grew out of the first. He says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. There's the foundational statement. Covetous, boasters, pride, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. You look at those things. Covetous. What does covetousness say? Covetousness says, I deserve. I deserve that. Have you worked for it? Well, that doesn't matter. I deserve it. Why do you deserve it? Because I'm me. Because I'm, in the words of the advert, worth it. Really? Though you've not worked for it, though you've not invested in it, 
Though you've not taken the time to study it or prepare for it, somehow or other you want the fruits of the reward of it. That's an indication of one who loves himself. Boasting and pride and blasphemy. Each act says, I'm the most important person. You know, each of them says, you don't matter. God doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is me. I'm the only thing that matters. You know, this is the selfie generation where every photograph is about me. You know, when I was a young person, you would get these, uh, these little cameras. If you, were, if you were fortunate enough, once in a while you'd get a little disposable camera. Do you remember those? You got about 16 shots, I think, if I remember. 24 maybe. And you send them off to be developed, and about three would come back, right? <laughs> 21 would be blank. Or 20, you know, someone would have heads cut off and feet cut off, and you'd all, you know, it would be a running joke, wouldn't it? And you had to use those shots sparingly. Not like today, where you have, you know, 101 shots that you can take of any particular moment, and then just delete them if you don't like them. No, you had to be sparing about it. And here's the interesting thing. When we were growing up, what did we take pictures of? We took pictures of other people. We took pictures of scenery without us in the picture. Now what do people take a picture of primarily? Themselves. They take a picture of themselves. They go to beauty spots. And I've been in some beauty spots and I've observed this. You look and you're in the most magnificent place. And yet you see these people. And instead of looking at the scenery around them, here they are with their camera up and their head is in the middle of the scenery. Taking a picture of myself. Oh yes, the Taj Mahal may be beautiful, but I'm more beautiful. Yes, the Great Wall of China is a magnificent structure, but look at me. That's what it's about. This is the so-called TikTok generation who make videos of themselves entertaining others with silly dances and pranks and, and what have you in order to get approval, in order to get likes, in order, in order that people will somehow warm to them and consider them more special than they actually are. Sometimes we're seeing those videos, others who are belittled in order to get an exchange for the world's applause. Recently there was a man who was quietly standing by a pond. I don't know if you saw this. He was standing by a lake or a river and somebody came up behind him, an elderly man, and pushed him in the back into the water. The poor man nearly drowned. But all of this was for the fun of a video. Another man, a mentally handicapped man, a person with mental disability, sitting on a park bench, minding his own business, and suddenly he is flowered by young people passing by who are videoing the whole thing because it's a big joke. What terrible times we live in. Proverbs says there's a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. 
There is a generation, oh how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. Paul uses the term covetous here. The idea is that they are greedy for gain and prosperity. It's all about money. You've got people, that's all they're interested in. They cherish, cherish money. You've got boasters and braggers and blowhards who overestimate their abilities on CVs in order to gain jobs that they aren't capable of holding. People who believe that no one knows better than they, not God, not man, not parents, blasphemers who have no need of God, who have no need of parental advice, who have an arrogant attitude which says that I know everything there is to know, who are ungrateful for the things that they have because they feel entitled. I think you see that even on the roads now. You know, when I learned to drive, one of the big things was that you ought to be courteous to other road users, whether they be pedestrians or other drivers. Now you let people in or let people out and they just stare through you. They don't even thank you. They just look at you like you're dirt and drive on by. Don't have the grace to thank you. Why? Because they think that they're entitled. And they're unholy. That's how Paul describes them ultimately. Because in their world, in the pride of their own heart, in the pride of their own minds, listen, they are God. There's an increasing selfishness. And then there's an increasing heartlessness. If you look in verse 3, he says they're without natural affection. Truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good without natural affection. The term literally speaks of heartlessness. You know, we read about heartless actions all the time. I read of a mother who sexually abused her young daughter, burnt her with a light bulb, and hit her fingers with a hammer. You have to be a pretty heartless individual to do that, wouldn't you? Just recently I read of a woman who took revenge on her husband's unfaithfulness by killing her own baby. Then she carved the baby up, boiled the baby, and fed the baby to her husband in a stew as a punishment for his unfaithfulness. Perilous times. Unthinkable deeds. You say, well, that lady was out of her mind. She was out of control. Uh, that's the thought of the very next verse, the very next word, rather. It says that, that, that they're, they're incontinent. Notice, without natural affection, truth speakers, false accusers, incontinent, out of control. Someone who lacks personal temperance. Uh, it's evident in everything that we see today. It's evident in sexual behavior. It's evident in the drug addiction uh, issue. It's evident in, in, in terms of food. It's evident in every avenue of society. People are out of control. We see this in the lustful LGBT movement. Now anything goes. It doesn't matter anymore. People are out of control. Whatever you desire is what you have. It doesn't matter if it's men with women or men with men or women with women. And on it goes until you arrive at a point where you say, well, actually everything goes. You know, they've got this LBGTQI, whatever it is, and on it goes. And I just read the other day, somebody wants to put a Z on this. What's Z stand for? You ready for this? Suvilia. Bestiality. 
Here are people who are sexually attracted to animals. Now, I don't even like talking about this stuff in church, but this is in the Bible, actually. But there are people who are sexually attracted to animals. And if you take the mantra of the LGBT community, love is love, you can see how they can argue this logically. They can say, you can't judge me. You can't say that my attraction for animals is wrong or perverse. Love is love. What does it matter as long as I love the animal? Oh, you see the filthiness of the mind. You can have one partner or you can have many partners with the opposite sex or the same sex. It matters not. Adultery now is said to be good for your marriage. People are encouraged to have affairs. Let me tell you something. As a pastor, I've dealt with numerous people who've had affairs. I've never seen a marriage strengthened as a consequence. Never seen it. There are no so-called norms anymore. We see this in the ongoing development of the gender debate, the whole spectrum of gender. We're told now there are 56 genders to choose from. You can choose your gender. As someone put it, there are actually two genders and 54 mental disorders. You know, I posted a screenshot on my Facebook page this week of a t-shirt company that were selling a t-shirt which uh, inscribed in rainbow letters read, there are more than two genders. And then buyers were invited to choose whether their purchase was for a male or a female. We no longer accept homosexuality. We celebrate homosexuality as a society. Once again, in the month of June, we've been, we've been subject to a so-called Pride Month, a whole month of celebration of the LGBT agenda, 30 days celebrating sexual deviance. No other festivity in our calendar gets that kind of attention. You think about it. No other celebration in our nation gets 30 full days of attention. Not Easter, not Christmas, not Passover, not Eid. No other celebration uh, is, is given but more than one or two days to be remembered and then we move on to something else somewhere else. Uh, you know, even when we come to remembering our fallen in the month of November, we have but one day. One day when we remember those men who, and women who have given their lives in the defense of our nation. We give them one day of our time. But we have to have 30 days to celebrate deviance. So much so that our Prime Minister last month emerged from 10 Downing Street beneath a rainbow arch identifying himself with this cause. Franklin Graham wrote on his Twitter account, This is an entire month set aside to celebrate a lifestyle that God defines as sin. It's like setting a month aside to celebrate lying, adultery, or murder, or anything else that God says is sin. Well, friends, we are living in perilous times. We're living in the last days. You still think the Lord Jesus is not soon to appear? You think the trumpet is not soon to be sounded? You think the church is not soon to be snatched away? 
Do you think the tribulation is not soon going to unfold upon the face of the earth? Do you think that Antichrist is not en route? I think you'd have to have your head in the sand if you believe such things. We're living in perilous times. Times of increased selfishness. Times of increased heartlessness. Times of increased brutality. Look here in verse 3 again. He talks about those who are fierce. Those who are despisers of those that are good. The word fierce there is a term that uh, Paul employs to describe a, a society that is driven by violence. Savage and brutal, he says. You can see that in some of the headlines that we read earlier. The brutality of man upon man. You don't have to trawl the newspapers for these things. You don't have to spend hours and hours Googling to find these things. They're right there before your eyes in any news column in black and white. Our society is a society that employs gratuitous violence as a means of entertainment in music, in film, in gaming. Now, of course, we're told that none of this has any bearing upon the lives of those who are exposed to it because they can distinguish between reality and fantasy. And I grant you, probably the majority of people can distinguish between reality and fantasy. But does one really need a fantasy in which you are being grossly violent or brutal to somebody else? For some people, it is not a case that they can separate fantasy from reality. The truth is that those films and those games feed into their lust for violence and cruelty. You think about the most cruel thing of all. According to the World Health Organization, every year there is an estimated 40 to 50 million unborn children destroyed in the womb on this planet. That's the equivalent of the nation of England every year is wiped out in the womb. 125,000 abortions every day. You talk about a fierce world. You talk about a world where the defenseless and the unborn can be gassed and poisoned and carved apart as a matter of convenience. In some instances, simply because you don't care for the sex of the child. You know, the Bible says that children are the heritage of the Lord. That they are his blessing upon us. But Tracy Stone Manning, a, a prominent American politician in the Biden administration, describes children as, quote, an environmental hazard. Can you imagine describing children as an environmental hazard? Now listen, if a society will not defend its most vulnerable and defenseless members, you can hardly be surprised to find that they become despisers of those that are good. That's where we're at. Here are people in a society that has no love for virtue. In their love of self, men have become haters of good. Hating that which should be loved and loving that which should be hated. Isaiah writes of this in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. When he says, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Perilous times. That's where we're at. And then notice also that Paul speaks 
not only of an increasing heartlessness, an increasing uh, selfishness, uh, and an increasing sense of brutality, but he speaks also of increasing self-indulgence in verse 4. He speaks about those who are traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Here he describes people as being treacherous, people who cannot be trusted. Heady, people who are rash, who rush headlong, people who act on an impulse. High-minded, those who are conceited, who think of themselves more highly than they ought. And here's the outcome of all of that. You end up with people who are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. That's a composite Greek term, there are lovers of pleasures, and it simply means one who, uh, indeed, is hedonistic. It's, it's to, it's the idea is, uh, the word is philos, philodonos, which means to, from philos to love, and donos, which gives us hedonism, hedonism, delight. People who, who, who delight in their pleasures. That's all they're living for. No, there's nothing wrong with enjoying something. The Bible says that God has given us every good gift to enjoy, every good thing to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a meal. There's nothing wrong with enjoying your family. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a holiday. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a a, a craft or a, a hobby of some kind. We're not saying that at all. But what we are saying here is, here are people whose primary pursuit is self-pleasure and self-gratification at the expense of others. The expense of society itself. These characteristics are all about one thing. Self. Men are traitors because of self. They're headstrong because of self. They're high-minded. They're conceited because of love of self. And in some way, Paul brings us full circle here when we come to verse 4. Because what we find now is we're living in a self-centered time among self-centered people who have self-centered thoughts and who do self-centered things with no thought of God or man on the horizon. Essentially what we have is a society where people who are made in the image of God have become so unlike God in their spirit and in their actions that the Bible labels them as ungodly. Let me tell you something today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that is what the Bible calls you, ungodly. It doesn't say that you're a good person in need of a little reformation. It doesn't say that you're a decent individual who just needs a little improvement. It says that you're an ungodly and rebellious sinner who's in need of salvation and reconciliation to God. That's what the Bible teaches. People who we read here have a form of godliness in verse 5, but deny the power of it. That is, they're completely helpless and hopeless because they're held to ransom by their lusts and have no ability to overcome their nature outside of Jesus Christ. And so they yield to their basic instincts. As he closes out this section, Paul gives two examples of the kind of behavior he has in mind in verse 6. Through nine, he says, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, 
Now as Jans and Yambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. Now as he closes out this section, he refers to silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. And that may sound misogynistic to you, but I want you to understand the Apostle Paul was no misogynist. He did not hate women. In fact, the New Testament scriptures gave more liberty to women than they'd ever had before. Now, Paul isn't making a, a statement here against women as a whole. He's talking about a particular kind of woman. And he defines her as one who's led away with diverse lusts. There's the, there's the indication of the kind of woman that he's holding up here as a bad example. You know, there's a time when women in our society, in this country, knew how to say no to a man. But now we find that many women have no problem sleeping with men that they've only just met. Literally on the first day. Silly women, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. So I trawled the newspapers this week. I read of a prison officer, a female prison officer, who engaged in sexual activity with a prisoner whilst other prisoners looked on. My friends, these are perilous times. Perilous times. And then he speaks about not just depraved women. But he talks about depraved men like Jans and Yambres, uh, who were magicians in, in the time of the Exodus in Pharaoh's court during the time of Moses. And as Moses displayed the power of God before Pharaoh, well, these guys countered with, uh, counter, uh, countered with their own miraculous acts and, and they resisted the truth. And they basically cemented Pharaoh and the idea that he didn't have to let the people go. And so they picture anyone who's resistant to the truth. And that's where we are today in our society. Men are not just indifferent to the truth. Men are hostile to the truth. And if you don't believe that, listen, just go to work tomorrow and mention Jesus and see what kind of reception you get. Just go in and bring it up in a conversation that you were at church today and say, hey, would you like to hear what the pastor had to say? What's the response you get? You know, I learned a long time ago, if I want to have a seat to myself on a train, all i got to do is put my Bible on the table. That's all I do. I set my Bible out there, I open it, people come up, no matter how, how crowded the train is, they look at you, and then they carry on. There's about 500 people in the end carriage and me sitting on my own further up the train. People are hostile toward the truth. They don't want the truth. We live in a society which, according to verse 7, is ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's where we're at. You know, as the times go on, we're growing exponentially in our knowledge of science and, and other areas of study. You know, men have made advances that are way beyond anything that was experienced in previous generations. We know a great deal about a lot of things, but the one thing that we don't know about is the one thing that we must know about, and that's the truth. And the truth comes in the form of a person. 
The truth comes in the ship of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the truth. As the end approaches, we find that people don't want to know the truth. They will dip their toes in Eastern mysticism and they'll dip their toes in all kinds of weird and wonderful religious ideas. They'll play around with the occult psychics and, and palm reading and all that nonsense. Anything but the truth. No wonder we can say, as Paul said, that we're living in perilous times. These are the traits that are hallmarks of the last days. In the words of the songwriter, troublesome times are here, filling men's hearts with fear, freedoms we all hold dear, now is at stake, humbling your hearts to God, see us from the chastening rod, seek the way pilgrims trod, O Christian, awake, Jesus coming soon, morning or night or noon, many will meet their doom, trumpets will sound. All of the dead shall rise, righteous meet in the skies, going where no one dies, homeward bound. But you know, it is true that many will meet their doom. In fact, Paul says it right here, verse 9, but they shall proceed, what does he say? No further. There comes a point, you see, where God has drawn a line. And he will let society go so far, and then he's going to say, okay, that's enough now. He's going to step into the Situation. He's going to step onto this planet and he's going to right the wrongs and he's going to correct the sinner and he's going to judge the sinner. Some will meet their doom. Surely it cannot be long until the Lord returns. And in the light of that truth, what are we to do? Well, here's what I would suggest to you today. If you're here and you're not saved as yet, you've never been born again already, well, you need to get right with God. There's the first thing you need to do. Because if the Lord Jesus should appear, you want to be ready to meet him. You want to know him as your Savior. You want to experience his forgiveness. You want him to call you to his side and not reject you. You want him to receive you unto himself, that where he is, there you may be also. Well, listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're living in perilous times. Jesus is on his way. And you need to be saved. But if you're here this morning as a Christian, well then we need to commit to a life of godliness, don't we? Because the same thing applies to us. We need to live a separated life. We don't need to be like Jans and Yamras and be resistant of the truth. We need to be surrendered to the truth. We need to live a life that is pleasing before God and not a life that is centered on self, a life that is centered on Christ, on his glory and his honor. And then thirdly, as we have opportunity, you and I who know the Lord must with some urgency share the message of Christ. Time is short. Paul put it this way. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy, not like this whole world, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh 
to fulfill the lust thereof. He says it's time for the church of God to awake out of our sleep and to get busy for Jesus. Because perilous times are here. These are perilous times. These are, I believe, the last of the last days. And we need to be ready for the trumpet is soon to sound. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you today for its timely warning, for its identification of our times and of our society and the characteristics of it. And Lord, we certainly live in a terrible, terrible world. A world in which Christ has been rejected. A world in which your name is but a swear word. A world in which men are hostile to you. Not only atheistic, but misotheistic. Haters of God. But lovers of pleasures. Lord, help us today if we're here and we're not believers. We're not Christians. To realize the lateness of the hour. To realize that. Just as, God, you've been long-suffering and, and are long-suffering, uh, that your grace does not extend forever, that there comes a point when men may go no further and when Jesus will step out of the glory and into this earth again to deal with the sin of man, to judge men in righteousness. Lord, help them today to trust him as their Savior. To see that the one who is coming to be their judge first came to be their savior. That his desire was never to condemn, but ever to save. That his heart toward them is good. And he wishes to bless with his grace and forgive and to reconcile men unto God. Help them to come today and to acknowledge their sinfulness. To admit themselves sinners before you and to seek your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We pray today for your people. Lord, wake, awake our souls. Help us to see how late the day is. Help us to realize that the Lord may come at any moment and that we too need to be ready and prepared. Help us to share Christ as opportunity arises in the days ahead. And I pray, Lord, you would use the words of these scriptures to mold and shape our lives and to cause us to be what we ought to be for Jesus' sake. And in his name we ask it. Amen. Let's sing our final hymn this morning. If we can have some folks with me on.